copy of God's Word to John 6. John 6, verses 66 through 71 is going to be our text for this morning. And as you are turning there, as Clay already mentioned, let me remind you that all good things on this side of heaven must come to an end. We have been in John 6 for quite some time now, and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm very excited to finish it. Uh, as we find out many, many great things about the Lord and about his people today as we walk through John 6. Let me encourage you to stand for the reading of God's word. This is John 6, verses 66 through 71, written by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for your gathered people. Thank you so much for this Christmas season and this morning. Thank you so much for your word. Lord, I don't know what went on in the hearts and lives of the people here this week, but Lord, you know. You know what they're going through, Lord. And as we gather together and look at your word, Lord, I pray for two things. Lord, firstly, I pray for me. Lord, I pray that you would guard me from error and guard me from pride. Lord, I pray that standing up here, I would be a mere vessel for your truth and nothing more. Lord, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth, they will not be my words, but that they will be your words. Well, Lord, secondly, I want to pray for this congregation here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would unstop any deaf ears and that you would unblind any blinded eyes and as my childhood pastor prayed Lord I pray that you would touch us this morning at our point of greatest need Lord we pray that by your word through your spirit's power that you would speak to us this morning and we pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not have a saving knowledge of you before they walk out the doors of this church this morning that they would repent and believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1966, a man by the name of Sergio Leone directed a film called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. This movie was a spaghetti western film that uh, showed two men who were in an uneasy alliance nicknamed the good and the bad, and how they 
traveled and fought against a third man nicknamed the Ugly for a hidden fortune of gold that was buried in a remote cemetery. The movie was an instant hit, and it made famous the spaghetti western genre of movie. Now, many of you might be asking, what in the world does this movie have to do with the end of John 6? And I am here to tell you that it has nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with the end of John 6. To be honest with you, I've never even seen the movie. Samantha and I were going to watch it on Friday night until I realized that it was a three-hour movie, and it's not even streamable on Netflix. So if it's, not on Net if it's not on Netflix, does the movie even really exist? But nevertheless, as I was meditating on this text and I was putting together this sermon, these three categories of the good, the bad, and the ugly were just irresistible to me to frame this sermon around. Because what we're going to find in our text for this morning is that there's three categories of disciples. We have the category of the good disciples that stick with Christ no matter what. We have the category of the bad disciples that leave when the going gets tough. And then we have Judas, the ugly disciple, if you will, who is willing to be bought to betray Christ. Here we see that in John 6, the end of John 6, we have just read this entire story about how the day prior Jesus had fed the 5,000 plus people. He is miraculously provided with a few loaves and a few fish. Jesus then walks on water to get to the disciples in the evening. And the next morning he's across the sea and the crowds of people that saw him teach yesterday are back. And Jesus says, you're only here because you're looking for food. And then he goes on this long discourse to show how he does not just provide for their physical need, but he provides for their eternal and spiritual need. But this teaching was too difficult for some of them. So some of them walk away, which we will soon find. But before we continue, let me give you my, my big idea for this morning. The big idea for this morning is this, is that good disciples neither turn away nor betray, but cling to Christ. Good disciples neither turn away nor betray, but cling to Christ. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to examine each of these three groups of disciples in order to determine what type of disciple we ought to be and also determine what type of disciple we are that we might conform even closer to God's truth and God's plan for our lives. My first point for this evening is found in verse 66. First point for this evening is this, is that when the reality of Christianity turns difficult, bad disciples turn away from Christ. When the reality of Christianity turns difficult, bad disciples turn away from Christ. Read with me again verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now I'm going to be in this verse for about 10 to 15 minutes, so I encourage you to get cozy. We find here that after Jesus' long narrative about his sufficiency, many of his disciples that were following him decide to turn back and stop following him. Well, why did they do that? What were the truths in John 6 that were too difficult for this group of disciples to hear? As I 
review John 6, I think there were, there were three specific truths that, that, that cut to their heart that they weren't willing to deal with. Firstly, in verse 26, Jesus told the people that they had only come to him so that they would be fed. Jesus here convicts the people of their selfishness. Jesus says, you're not coming to me for the teaching. You're not coming to me for the doctrine. You're only coming to me because I give you good things and I make your life better. This was convicting for them. But I think the reason why they left goes deeper than that. In verse 35, Jesus himself proclaims to be the bread of life. He proclaims, in other words, that he, as a man, was the source of spiritual satisfaction. Now, I want ourselves to, to put ourselves in the mind of a first century Jew, right? Most likely, these disciples had been studying the Old Testament for the entire lives. In the Old Testament, we find a lot of things, but one of the big things is that there is only one God and only one God alone. And he is in heaven, and we are on earth, and we need to worship him. And they were right. So having a man step in front of them and say, I am the bread from heaven. I am every solution to your every spiritual need. That's hard to hear. But what the Jews missed, what the disciples here missed, was that Jesus was not a mere man. Jesus was the God-man. Yes, he took on our flesh. He became incarnate for us, which we celebrate in this Christmas season. But he was 100% and fully God as well. And thus, he was able to provide for their spiritual need. But to take it one step further, I think many of these disciples left because they wanted to find sufficiency in themselves. In verse 40, Jesus himself said that the only way to get to God was if God himself drew them. And this was too hard for them to hear because they wanted to climb their own ladder to get to heaven. They wanted to obey their own set of rules to get to heaven. But Jesus says, no, the only way to the Father is if the Father himself draws them. Now let us realize this morning that for some of these disciples, maybe these, maybe these truths were too difficult to comprehend. But for most of them, I would argue... It wasn't that it was too difficult for these things to be comprehended. It was that these truths were too difficult for them to believe. So what did they do? They turned and they walked away. What John is trying to describe here in the way that he phrases this, this turning and, and no longer walking with Jesus, this is the idea as if they were taking that 180 degree turn. They were following Jesus, but if you will, they repented from following Jesus. So that though they were following him for a moment, they would no longer follow him any longer. Biblically, we refer to this as apostasy. As apostasy, those who become apostates because they follow Christ for a moment, but then they turn from him. And we know in this reformed culture that when someone commits apostasy, it is not because they were saved and now they are not saved. We realize that these disciples were never truly saved. In the words of John in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 19, these disciples went out from Christ because they were never truly of Christ. And there's many examples of this in Scripture, is there not? There's many examples. Let me ask you guys a question. Now, I want a raise of hands. I'm asking you to participate. How many of you remember who Orpah was in Scripture? Anybody? Anybody? Samantha, we talked about this. You can raise your hand. Who remembers who Orpah was? Anybody? Okay. A couple of us. 
For the rest of you, I'll be praying for you. No, it's okay. I'm just kidding. Most of us don't remember who Orpah was. Before I did this sermon prep, to be honest, I probably wouldn't remember who Orpah was. You know why you don't remember who Orpah was? Because Orpah walked away from the Lord. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Chapter 1. We find who Orpah was in Scripture. Let me give you a quick review on the book of Ruth, if you haven't read it in a while. The book of Ruth is all about two Gentile Moabite daughters who marry two Jewish men who then die. Elimelech, which is really fun to say, takes Naomi, his wife, and their two sons to the land of Moab because of a famine. These two sons take two daughters from the Moabite woman and and make them their wives. And these, these daughters, these wives' names were Ruth and Orpah. You travel quickly down the story of Ruth, and Elimelech and his two sons died. Which means that Naomi, this widow, and her two daughters-in-law are alone in the land without any financial provision. So they decide to go back to the land of Israel. Pick up the story with me in verse 7. So she, that's Naomi, set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Pause there for a moment. What we find here is Naomi is encouraging her two daughters-in-law to stay in their homeland. Because if they returned to the land of Israel, life would be difficult. There would be no husband for them, right? They would have to abide by Jewish cultures and Jewish laws as Gentiles in a foreign land. But what do they do? They both say, Ruth along with Orpah, they say, no, we're going to return with you. But Naomi continues to plead with them in verse 12. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 14, this is the key. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. At the beginning, Ruth and Orpah said they were going to follow Naomi. Back to her land, back to her people, back to her God. But then Naomi fleshed this out a little bit more. And when she fleshed it out a little bit more... Orpah realized that the reality of following Yahweh would turn difficult. Orpah realized that life with the Lord, with the Lord's people, didn't sound as nice as life in her homeland. So she kissed her mother-in-law and left, but Ruth clung to her. And turn back to the book of John. But let us realize that the book of Ruth doesn't end there. The book of Ruth continues with the story of, you guessed it, Ruth. And it doesn't mention Orpah any longer. Furthermore, in the book of John, we see that these bad disciples who turned away from Christ are never spoken of again. 
their story is ended. They cling to the things of this world rather than clinging to Christ. There's many other examples of this in Scripture. Think of Lot's wife who, who was rescued from Sodom but turned back to Sodom and became a pillar of salt. Think of the entire nation of Israel who followed the Lord for a time but quickly clung to the idols of this world and were condemned to exile. Think of the antichrists that are referred to in 1 John 2 that begin with the congregation of God's people, but soon turn from him and preach a different doctrine. This examples of people who turn from Christ all over Scripture. The question for us this morning is, are we one of those disciples? The reality of Christianity is difficult. The commands of Christ are difficult. Christianity is no cakewalk. Let me just be personal with you here for a moment and give you a truth of Christianity that has been very difficult in my life. A truth of Christianity that's been very difficult in my life. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, most of you have heard this verse quoted as a comfort. And it should be a comfort. Right? I'm not saying it shouldn't be. This is one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. Knowing that whatever circumstance we come to, the Lord is good and He is working for our good. But it's not so easy to believe. All of you in here know that Samantha and I got engaged about a month ago now. I think time flies. A week after we get engaged, her transmission fails and mine starts to fail. Trying to plan a wedding, two broken cars, thousands of dollars. Romans 8, 28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And all of a sudden, that promise becomes difficult. So let me ask you this morning. When the cancer diagnosis comes, when the loved one dies, when the persecution gets too difficult, when the money isn't rolling in, when the baby you've been longing for miscarriages, and let, us make it, let me make it personal this morning. When the church we've been attending for years gets way smaller than we would have liked. Do we turn away from Christ? Or do we trust in the promises of God? Do we follow this group of disciples that says, Hey, this Christian thing, the promises here, the truths here are too difficult. I'm done with this. Or do we cling to Christ like the second group of disciples that we now turn to? Point number two, when the reality of Christianity turns difficult, good disciples cling to Christ, their only true option. When the reality of Christianity turns difficult, good disciples cling to Christ, their only true option. Read with me verses 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, and this is so beautiful, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, picture this scene with me for a moment. Jesus has been preaching, I would assume, all day. About how he is sufficient. About how there is an opportunity for all to come to him that they might have life. But slowly but surely... This crowd of people, the day before it was 5,000, who knows how many it was today, starts slowly but surely, one by one, turning and walking away. In the heat of the day, 
I've been to Capernaum in the heat of the day. It's hot. Everybody had to be sweating. Jesus has been teaching for hours. And he sees the crowds. And, and slowly but surely one from the back row walks away. And then another from the middle of the crowd grabs his family and leaves. And another from the front starts gathering his things and walking back home. And Jesus' heart breaks because he has come to seek and to save the lost. So he turns to the twelve. And he says, do you wish to leave me as well? Now there's a couple different reasons that Jesus could have asked this question. Firstly, he could have asked this question to the twelve to, to give them an opportunity to express their faith. Right? All of these others, perhaps hundreds of people, are leaving Jesus. So Jesus turns to the twelve and says, are you going to leave me as well? And he, he gives them an opportunity to say, no, we're not, we're not going to leave you. We're going to stick with you. Jesus does this at many times. He gives the disciples an opportunity to express their faith. Secondly, he, he could have just honestly been giving them a way to escape before things got difficult. Everything was laid on the table now. It's Jesus or no one. And Jesus' path is difficult because they would have to find all of their sufficiency in him and not rely on themselves. So Jesus looks at the twelve and says, this is the path that I'm bringing you on. Are you ready for the journey? Third, Jesus could have asked this question to show his love for the disciples. Show his love for his chosen twelve by pleading with them. Are you going to leave too? I'd prefer you not. I'd prefer you to stay with me because I love you. But either way, I think the point of this story is not necessarily Jesus' question, but Peter's reply. And I love this here because Peter takes a a tool out of Jesus' toolbox and the answer is Jesus' question with a question. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else shall we turn to? What other option do we have? Matthew Henry, in his commentary, uh, he says something like this. I adapted it a lot, um, but I'll give him the credit because it's mostly him. He says, put yourself in Peter's shoes here. Should he return to the world? It will only deceive him. Should he return to his sin? It will only destroy him. Should he return to the scribes and to the Pharisees, he will be condemned along with them. Should he return to his fishing nets, he will be left without eternal hope. Should he return back to Moses or to the prophets of old or to the teachings of the Old Testament, surely they will do nothing but point him back to Christ. Thus we find that Peter's only valid option, his only true option, his only spiritually satisfying option was Christ and Christ alone. The point here is that in comparison to all other options, the way of Christ, though difficult, is highly superior. In the end, it will be the only good option that leaves us spiritually satisfied. But hypothetically for a moment... What are our other options? Just like Peter, the world will deceive us and our sin will destroy us. So, should we turn to our money? Well, that has no good beyond this life. Should we turn to our fame? Well, most of us don't have any of that anyway. But for those of us who do, that is fleeting as well. Should we turn to our family and to our friends? Well, we are grateful for those and we ought to abide in fellowship with them, but ultimately they cannot provide us with eternal salvation either. Or perhaps most convictingly, should we turn to ourselves? 
Should we climb our own ladder to heaven? Surely we know that we will fail. Peter goes on. He says, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Why is there nowhere else to turn? Because only in Christ is salvation found. Brothers and sisters, what do we ultimately need? Do we ultimately need money? Do we ultimately need success? Do we ultimately need fame or a relationship? Temporal comfort? Temporal peace? No. We don't need a buddy. We don't need a friend. We don't need a parent. We don't need a spouse. We don't need a child or a doctor or a boss. We need a savior. And there's only one. Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me make this very simple point to you this morning. That a Christian at the end of the day is no less than one who believes that Jesus Christ is the only option. Peter continues, he says that we, talking about the disciples, the twelve disciples as a whole, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love this. Peter says not only have we taken that first step of belief, But through walking with you, Christ, we have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. It's the same for us, is it not? We take that first step of belief, but as we walk with Christ, we grow in our faith. We become more like Him and we become to know Him more. An intimate knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that our salvation... Sorry, not our salvation. So that our faith in Him is made more secure. Our salvation cannot be any more secure than the day we come to Him. But our faith, our trust, and our knowledge of Him becomes greater so that we can come to know just like Peter that Jesus Christ himself is the holy one of God now let's unpack this this title of Jesus here the holy one of God it's a very interesting one and ironically it only uh, comes Jesus is only referred to as the holy one of God two more times in the New Testament and interestingly um, both of those are from the lips of Peter in Acts 2.27 and 3.14. So it's kind of Peter's term for for Christ, if you will. But what is this term referring to? Jesus as the Holy One of God. I think what Peter's trying to get across here is that Christ is both holy in his person and holy in his position. Firstly, Jesus Christ is holy in his position. Right? God is holy, holy, holy. We know that from Isaiah 6. And we know that Jesus Christ as God has the character of God because he is God. And therefore, he is holy, holy, holy. Jesus Christ is perfect in his character. He makes no mistakes. He is set apart morally. But I think Peter's also getting across here that Jesus Christ is holy in his position. Set apart, if you will, in his position. Sanctified in his position. Because Jesus Christ was the one whom God has chosen to be the Messiah. He is the one whom God has chosen to be the Christ, the anointed one. The one that would not only fulfill all of Israel's hopes and dreams and longings, but fulfill all of our hopes and dreams and longings. He is the one who lived the perfect life. He is the one who died the atoning death and risen again for our justification. He is the Holy One of God. He is set apart. He is unlike us. And Before we move on from this point, I want to ask and application question for both the believer and for the unbeliever. First, for those of you who are unbelievers in this room this morning, let me ask you a question. If you are not turning to Christ, to what or to whom are you turning? Because if you're not turning to Christ, you have to be turning to something. 
Perhaps it's money. Perhaps it's greed. Perhaps it's yourself. Whatever it may be, to what are you turning to? And let me ask you this furthermore. How does what you are turning to measure up to Christ? Does what you are turning to provide you with eternal peace? Does what you are turning to have sovereignty over this world? Does what you are turning to provide for your salvation and life everlasting? If it doesn't, repent and follow the Lord today. But furthermore, for those of you who are in Christ, for those of you who are believers, let me ask you this. And this is a question that I have been pondering this week that has really convicted me. Do you have depth for the reasons why you follow Christ? Do you have depth for the reasons you follow Christ? In this text, we find one group of disciples that came for the loaves. We find one group of disciples that came for the money, which we'll see in a moment with Judas. But we find one group of disciples that came for the living God. Are you a Christian because of the gifts or because of the giver? John Piper says this. He says, people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people into heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle by every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Peter and the twelve apostles, minus Judas, were truly converted by the gospel. The question is, are we? We have seen this morning in our first point, the bad disciples who turn away when the going gets tough. We have seen our second point, that there's a group of good disciples here who give us a model to stick with Christ, our only option when Christianity gets tough. But thirdly, we find the ugly disciples. Point number three. When an illusionary better option presents itself, ugly disciples betray Christ for temporary reward. When an illusionary better option presents itself, don't worry, I will explain that. Ugly disciples betray Christ for a temporary reward. Verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now before we get to Judas, I want to examine Jesus' question here. Jesus, in replying to Peter, asked the twelve, Did I not choose you? Did I not choose you, the twelve? And I don't think this is the main point of the text, but I think that we see here that the reason why these 12 minus Judas stayed with Jesus was not because of their own merit. It was not because of their own choosing. It was not because of their own desire. It was because Jesus Christ himself chose them. It was because, you can put it this way, the sovereign election of God had bestowed upon them grace. There's a reason why these 11 stick, stuck with Christ. It was not because of anything inside of them. It was because of something outside of them. It was because Jesus Christ himself handpicked them to be his disciples. Likewise, we worship Christ and we exalt Christ and we stick with Christ when the going gets tough because he 
has elected us. Because he has sovereignly chosen us. Well, let's now talk about Judas. The text here, Jesus literally calls Judas a devil. Now, Jesus is not calling Judas the devil, right? He's calling him a devil, right? A devil literally means a slanderer, right? An enemy of God. So Jesus here says that one of the twelve, speaking of Judas, is, the de- is a devil. He is a slanderer of God. He is a betrayer of God, we find in verse 71. And we all know the story, right? The night before the Last Supper, Judas goes out and he makes a deal with the chief priests and the elders of the town. And he says, I will deliver Christ to you. To you. I will find him when he is vulnerable. And I will show you where he is for 30 pieces of silver. So the night of the Last Supper, Judas is there. He, he leaves a little bit early. He gathers the crowd These soldiers and chief priests, they come with swords and clubs and torches to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was praying to the Father. And Judas walks up to the Son of Man, kisses him on the cheek, and turns him over to the authorities so that he might be crucified. Now many times the story of Judas ends there. But in Matthew 27, we find the ending of the story of Judas. He actually goes back to the court and tries to return the 30 pieces of silver, as if that would help the scenario. Um, But he tries to, and they don't take his money. And eventually, this money is used to buy a field. And uh, in Acts 1 and in Matthew 27, we find that, that Judas committed suicide in that field. Most likely because of the guilt that he had for betraying the Messiah. What we see here in Judas is a perfect example of what it looks like and how it turns out when we choose worldly pleasures over Christ. When ugly disciples, if you will, have a price in which they can be bought out of Christianity. I did a little bit of research and a little bit of math, two things I'm not very good at, to try to figure out how, the, how much uh, this 30 pieces of silver would be worth. And a lot of people have a lot of different hypotheses, um, but I'll just take the greatest one, the greatest one that I could find um, to give Judas the benefit of the doubt, is that these 30 pieces of silver were about four months' wages. So if you do a little bit of math, according to the 2015 census, an average salary in America is about 60 grand. So if you do a little bit of math, there's four months, four, four months' salary, so 12 months out of year. So a third of your annual salary, we'll just say about 20. roughly, right? And that's on the high end. So in today's world, Judas betrayed the Savior of the world for about $20,000, $25,000. Now, let me be honest with you. $25,000? That's a nice paycheck, right? I would have a lot less problems with my car if, you know, I had a $25,000 paycheck every week. But that is a far small price to pay in betraying the Son of Man. Furthermore, we realize at the end of Judas' story that he committed suicide. That money that he even tried to return, it didn't do him any good. And likewise, every other pleasure of this world is nothing but an illusion. The word I use, illusionary, here in point three. Every other pleasure of this world is nothing but an illusion. It looks like it will satisfy. Money looks like it will satisfy. Oh, if I had a bigger paycheck, then I would be eternally secure. If I had better friends, right? Other things that tempt us, right? Whatever your particular temptation may be. 
if I had the things of this world, then I would be satisfied. I want to remind you of a verse that's tucked away in Hebrews 11, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 25. You don't have to turn there. I have it right here for you. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than, hear this, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let me be real with all for you. Let me be real with you all for a moment here. Sin is fun. Sin is a blast. You're like, whoa, preacher's saying sin is fun. Just hold on for a moment. 30 pieces of silver? Judas? He's probably having fun for a moment, right? You could probably bought a new donkey, maybe a new cloak, maybe some new sandals. $25,000 in today's world? Man, that'd be great, right? Cheating on our taxes? Sounds fun. A little extra money in the bank. How about this one? Being lazy? Sleeping in every morning? Not coming to church? Man, that sounds great. Relying on yourself for your own salvation rather than dealing with all those rules and regulations of the Bible? Sounds pretty fun. But those pleasures are but for a moment. Judas found that out so that we don't have to. And like Moses and like Peter, rather than betraying the Son of Man for the temporary pleasures of this world, for the illusionary pleasures of this world that promise to be better but truly are not, we ought to cling to Christ. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, we have looked at three different types of disciples this morning. We've looked at the bad disciples who have turned away from Christ when the going got tough. We've looked at the good disciples who clung to Christ and realized that there was no better option for eternal salvation. We looked at the ugly disciples, the disciples who could be bought with a price. But tonight I want to ask you this sobering question, which kind of disciple are you? Which kind of disciple are you? Are you a bad disciple who turns away from Christ right when things get difficult? Is there a point to which you can come to where this whole Christianity thing gets a little too difficult, you say, you know what, I'm going to go a different route. Is there a place to which God could put you to where you say, no, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. Secondly, are you an ugly disciple who betrays, who betrays Christ when, quote, a better option presents itself? Can you be bought out of your Christianity? Or lastly... Are you a good disciple who clings to Christ, your only option when the going gets tough? When life gets hard, when the promises of God get difficult, when the circumstances in your life do not go the way you would have chosen, do you bow your knees to the Father at night and pray, Lord, to whom else shall I go? Life is difficult, life is hard, but you have provided me with eternal life. And you are sovereign over this circumstance. And you have drawn me to you, and I will stick to you until the end. And for those of you who think you are that option, let me encourage you. Do you always act like a good disciple? 
you may be a good disciple, but do you have tendencies of bad discipleship? Are there certain days where you are tempted to give up? Are there certain days where you temporally give up and you have to repent of that giving up and cling once again to Christ? Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, let us remember that two of these three groups of disciples are no disciples at all. Bad disciples and ugly disciples are counterfeit disciples. They are no disciples at all. And at the end of the day, bad disciples and ugly disciples will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And if that is any of you today, let me encourage you that there is plenty of mercy at the foot of the cross of Christ. Repent of your bad discipleship and turn to the Lord and commit your life to him for he will provide for your every need. He has lived the perfect life. He has died the atoning death on the cross and he has risen again and he is enough for you if you would only turn to him. But lastly, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are good disciples, let us remember that there is an eternal reward waiting for us. The Bible tells us that, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but God has prepared for those who love him. The strugglings of this present world are not worth comparing to that which will be revealed in us. Brothers and sisters, this world is tough, but the Lord promises us that we ought to take heart because he has already overcome it. And by the Spirit's power and by the promises we have in God's word, we can look to Christ like Peter and say, to where else shall we go? You have the words, not of temporary life, but of eternal life. And we can find hope in him, rest in him, joy in him, and life everlasting. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your text here in John 6. We thank you so much for the opportunity that it is to realize, to remember, and to partake of eternal salvation. Lord, we remember this morning that you are the bread of life. You have come down from heaven took on our flesh and provided for every spiritual need. Let us not be like Judas. Let us not be like these bad disciples who turn from you, but let us cling to you even when the going gets tough. Even when the promises of Christianity seem difficult. Let me realize, let us realize there is no better option than to cling to Christ.